Welcome to Eucharist Podcast, where we're exploring what it looks like for a community of disciples to live all of life in reference to Christ. The following sermon was given by Father Ryan Jones on April 29th, 2018, the fifth week in Easter. Over the years that I've been in ministry, uh, I've come to realize that a good deal of my job as a pastor and a preacher is to take confusing and complicated ideas and try to make them simple. Um, For example, we all know um, that life in the 21st century is bewilderingly complicated. Uh, Technology and the proliferation of choices and the fact that we're all increasingly global citizens, uh, all these things add to the complication of life. There are enormous demands on our time and on our focus. And we have so many options where we could spend our life. But if I'm to be faithful to Christ, part of my job is to, be, is to remind us that the gospel makes a very clear and simple call on our lives. We are to prioritize Jesus above all else. As Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. So part of my job is to bring focus and clarity to the murky complexity of our world. However, the other half of my job is uh, to take things that appear on the surface to be simple and obvious and to complexify them. Even using that word, right? Complexify them. Or said better, to expose or to highlight the actual complexity and mystery that exists within them or behind them. So part of my job is to help us reject oversimplified cliches and to illuminate the mystery and complexity of the gospel. I say all this by way of telling you that today I would like to complexify a subject matter that is all too easily turned into a lifeless cliché in the 21st century. I want to talk about love and about how we are to love one another. Now, if we are to be honest, I think we should acknowledge that loving one another is not actually easy. It can sound simple. But it's actually quite difficult to love well. To love in the right way, uh, to the right degree, in the right order, for the right reasons, is precisely the work of sanctification. The point being that none of us are born with this capacity. We must grow and have our hearts transformed in order to love well. And this means that all of us here, every single one of us, um, are what you might describe as lovers in training. Take the creepy factor out of that, okay? Lovers in training. Uh, When I was a kid, our little Christian school would host uh, these all-school family skate nights where everyone came out and roller skated together. Uh, Do any of you do this before, back in the 80s? All right. Um, It was awesome and totally chaotic. Um, It would all happen in a big gymnasium with people of all ages and different stages of development and the capacity to skate, figuring it out together. Um, There were little kids who were strapping on skates for the first time, next to grown-ups who were also sometimes beginners. And some people um, had folks who were like holding on to them, like using shoes and walking as they were going along. Um, Others were trying to figure out how to stay upright for more than like 10 or 15 seconds as they skated along. Uh, When I was a kid, I was taught to put a pillow in my uh, sweatpants that I wore so that when I fell, I didn't break my tailbone. Um, Others started to feel in in the skate night, they would feel pretty confident. They'd go faster and faster. And then there were the show-offs, right? 
and they were spinning and they were weaving and they were jumping and they were going backwards and it was all happening in one room. One thing you could count on happening at every single skate night was a wide variety of wipeouts. Um, if you just stood back, you just kind of like observed for a little while, like you'd see people spilling all over the place. Even really good roller skaters would sometimes get wiped out by a flailing, tottering beginner who was like way out of control. One time I remembered that I was one of those show-offs zipping around in the, in the gym and I completely wiped out a very tall woman with her like five-year-old and six-year-old next to her, just completely leveled them onto the floor. And then I like skated off as fast as I could because I was afraid. Uh, usually um, the MC, there was always an MC who had the microphone and was like making the music go on, you know, would get everybody going in a similar direction. It'd be like, okay, everybody, we're going to do counterclockwise now. And everybody would be going counterclockwise around the gym. But before long, somebody would lose control of themselves and start heading into traffic and like Pretty soon you looked and the whole, half the gym was like sprawled on the ground because everybody was trying to avoid the person, hit somebody else. Now, I loved skate nights. The whole thing, as far as I, concerned, I was concerned, was a beautiful mess. Um, and I would like to suggest that a skate night is a great metaphor for what we experience in the church. We're like a bunch of roller skaters putting a gymnasium together. Only instead of learning to roller skate... It's as if we're all at various stages of learning the art and craft of loving. And if you stay around a church for any amount of time, you'll inevitably see your fair share of wipeouts. Sometimes it'll just be one or two people sprawled out on the floor. Um, it'll be like, ah, oh, there's Joe again. He doesn't have his problems. But sometimes the wipeout will be so big that basically everyone in the church is sent flailing to the ground in all directions in the metaphor. You see, wipeouts are part of skate nights. And equally, they're part of church life. Now, this isn't unique to our church or to even our time. It's happened in every generation. It goes all the way back to the original disciples who were wiping out and making messes all around Jesus, right? And you could even say that Jesus got wiped out by them. Learning to love is not easy in the first place. But learning to love in a community of people at all stages and with all kinds of different fears and handicaps is exponentially more complicated. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see, we see messes in the church, failures of love. We're a community of people learning to love. And this is what we're called to do. Now, this metaphor uh, that I'm suggesting is helpful, but it's actually too simple. I think we can all agree that learning to love is quite a bit more complicated than learning to skate. At a skate night, everyone pretty much knows what the goal is, right? And it isn't that complicated. The goal at a skate night is for everybody to go in the gym in a circle, the same direction, without falling and without wiping someone else out. That's basically it. Pretty low bar. But loving is way more complicated. One of the great challenges with learning to love um, is that we don't have a shared imagination for what we even mean by love. The scriptures tell us to love one another. But what does that even mean? Love is quite possibly the most powerful and most confusing word in the English language. Wars have been fought over love. More songs have been written about love than any other subject. We're all aware of the power of love. We talk about being in love, about falling out of love. People who have sexual intercourse are said to make love. 
We also use the word love in ways that are simply about desire. When we say something like, I love chocolate, I love rock climbing, whatever. The problem is that, yeah, Mark, uh, the problem is that love is a word dangerously vulnerable to our projections. Dangerously vulnerable to our projections. It's like a container that we place our own meaning into. And so when it comes to the Bible, we cannot help but import our own notions of love into the biblical text when we come across the word love. And this is a problem. But here's the good news. It's not a new problem. Or not even a problem limited to us. In the letter of 1 John, in the fourth chapter of 1 John, we encounter the Apostle John exploring the theme of love. It's the central focus of that chapter, which can be seen in noticing that John uses the word love 25 times in the course of 15 verses. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it and open with me uh, to chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. And maybe somebody could shout out a page number when they have that. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. 991. 991. Okay. Let's look at what John says starting in chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, let's just pause for a second here. It would be remarkably easy to misinterpret what John is saying here. Uh, We must remember that he is not offering like a universal philosophical statement for the general public in what he is writing. He's not writing to secular humanists who are trying to do good deeds and call it love. He's not championing love as an existential concept. He's making a particular argument to those who take the name of Jesus. To claim to know God, he says, is to be a person who loves. Why? Because God is love. You can't claim to know somebody and then do the opposite of that. But what does he even mean by love? How is love to be defined? Well, this is precisely what he goes on to address in what he says in verses 9 and 10, which are absolutely essential to everything about this passage. So look at verses 9 and 10 with me here. John says this, God's love was revealed, keyword, revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now John is making an exceedingly important argument about how we are to define love. And he's keen to show us that the love he's talking about doesn't begin in our existential experience. We don't start with our own emotions or our own feelings or our own ideas and then uh, project them onto God's love. Love in the way that John is talking about it is something that God revealed. God had to disclose its meaning because it wasn't something that we could simply intuit or understand on our own. That's his argument. I have a slide to help kind of bring this to explanation here. The, directional, uh, the direction of, of, def- of the definition of love looks like this. God must reveal his love among us, as John says in verse 9, or as he says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Now, often when we talk about love, we are basing it off our own emotions and feelings. The arrow for us many times is the other direction. When someone does something that I don't like, I think to myself, man, that that didn't feel loving. 
And when we think this way, what we're doing is we're making the metric or the measure of love our subjective feelings or our ideas about the world. What we are saying is that love emerges out of our experience. But John wants to keep us from making a category error with regard to love. He argues forcefully against first building our notion of love and then applying it to God. That would center the definition of love in ourselves. And this is polar opposite to how John understands love. He is insistent in verse 10 when he says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Twice, uh, in both verse verse 9 and verse 10, John grounds his understanding of love in the incarnation, in the coming of Jesus, in the sending of Jesus to come to us. And I want you to hear this really loud and clear. The incarnation is the basis of understanding and experiencing God's love. The incarnation. But it's not just that God in the person of Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us. It's that God in the person of Jesus died, as we say in the liturgy each week, as, quote, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. The definition of Christian love begins with the incarnation and finds its climax in the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And everything else that we talk about, uh, as with everything else we talk about around here at Eucharist Church, John is inviting us to see love in reference to Christ. And we will totally miss what the Bible means by love unless our understanding and experience of love begins and ends with Jesus. Nothing can be added to that definition. He is the complete definition and the perfect embodiment of love. And so what are the implications of this? Well, it means that love is far more complex and profound than we can possibly articulate. If love truly originates in God, and even more, if love somehow or another constitutes God's very existence, as John claims twice in this passage when he says God is love, then we dare not pretend to ourselves that God's love should fit in a human category or simply be a human emotion or the feeling of desire. You see, we can no sooner comprehend God's love than we can comprehend the mystery of the Incarnation itself, that the transcendent creator of the 46 billion light year across the universe decided to enter into his own creation, this little patch of real estate here, starting as a single cell that went on to develop for nine months into a human life who ultimately grew up to be rejected by his own creation and brutally murdered for the sake of the very ones who rejected him. That's dumbfounding. It's beyond words. It's a love that is literally mind-blowing. We can see this in Paul's prayer for the church that he has in Ephesus uh, chapter uh, 3, where he says this, and I have a slide for this here. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, Paul is filled with wonder. And he doesn't want the church in Ephesus to fall into cliches or into sentimentality about how, um, about with regard to love. I grew up in a church. It was a great church in many ways. But the church got really sappy in the way that it talked about love. It got very sentimental. It got very cliche, very hollow. There was no mystery in it. There was no wonder in it. And Paul does not want that to be our experience. 
He wants it to be overwhelming and powerful. As Paul says, the result of knowing the love of Christ is that we are filled with all the fullness of God. And this is vital for us to realize or we will, be in, we will inevitably severely distort the meaning of love. Love is not something that we conceptualize and master as we would, say, playing the banjo or studying Latin. Love is something that surpasses knowledge. Something that must be entered into. We don't master love. It masters us. And this is exactly what Jesus means by the language and imagery of abiding found in both John 15 and in 1 John 4 from today's readings. Abiding is an English translation of a Greek word that means dwelling. It's about where you make your life. It's about where you draw your life from, the table that nourishes you, the bed that gives you rest. Abiding is about your home. And Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like um, with this image of the vine and the branches. Let's listen again to what he says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. And then he sets up this extended metaphor here that he he works with uh, down in verse 4. Abide in me, he says, as I abide in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, unless it makes its home in the vine, unless it derives its life from the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. Some of us hear that last line and we cringe a little. We're like, nothing? Really? Like nothing at all? Just like a little bit, maybe? Jesus, aren't you exaggerating a little bit here? When we're not abiding in Him, Jesus pictures us as being as useful to God's overarching purposes as a dead branch is to a grapevine-producing grapes. On our own, we can do nothing. Everything we are called to, everything that we are called to is contingent on our connection to Jesus. We must be grafted into the vine so that the life-giving sap of the vine will bring nutrients to us. Like a branch connected to the vine, our life is a participation in the life of God. And not only our life, but what John argues back in 1 John 4 is that our love is a participation in His love. To put it bluntly, there's a sense in which the love with which we are to love is not our own. It's a participation in His love. It's love with which He first loved us that we are then able to extend to others. And this is the way that we are to love one another. But you might argue, don't non-Christians have love for others? Are we really going to suggest that love is limited to Christians? We all know plenty of people who are kind and loving who are not Christians, don't we? So how do we resolve this? I would suggest that we resolve it in a way parallel to the sense in which we all naturally possess a kind of life. We also naturally possess a kind of love. Um, you may know, and I said some of this, something about this in catechesis this morning, you may know that in the Greek, um, in the New Testament, uh, there are two words for life. There is bios, which is what it sounds like, biological life, the life of plants and animals and humanity that, though it's beautiful, ends in death. 
And then there's a second word in Greek for life, and it's the word zoe. Zoe is qualitatively and quantitatively different from bios. It's not just an extension of bios. It's different. Zoe is the life of God. It is immeasurably beautiful and rich and vibrant, and it has no end. And this is the life that Jesus offers us. It's a categorically different life from bios life. Bios life is brought into that. Not merely an extension of bios life. Now, in a similar way, what I would like to suggest is that what all of us experience uh, in a natural state is a particular kind of love. We experience it as quite powerful. Uh, The love of romance, or the love of true friendship between people, or the love of a parent for his or her child. All of these are really intense. Uh, In fact, I can just tell you by way of testimony that Elizabeth and I have been talking about, um, about the kind of love we've discovered for our son. Uh, it's a new kind of love, and it's like it's very powerful. It's not something I've ever experienced, actually. But, and hear me on this clearly, but as powerful as all of these kinds of love are, they're but tiny echoes, just brief glimmering images of the love that we encounter in Christ. The divine love. And what I believe John and Paul and the whole New Testament is telling us is that the love with which we are to love God and the love with which we are called to love each other is not merely a natural kind of love. It's the very love of God. We cannot drum it up. We can't force it. We can't white-knuckle it into existence. We can't get it from taking a class or reading a self-help book. This is the kind of love that does not emerge from within ourselves. It's a love that we must receive. It originates in God. And according to Jesus, the only way that we can receive it is by abiding in Him. And so, in the end, the complexification of love is precisely what allows love to actually become simple. It's actually good news that Christian love cannot be comprehended and mastered, it's too mysterious. It's too powerful. It's too complex. Instead, it must be entered into. And so if you find yourself here today and you realize that you're a poor lover, I have good news for you. You're not alone. As I said in the beginning, we're all lovers in training. And so here's the good news. If we want to be lovers of others, people who truly learn the art and the craft of love, then there is one thing, one thing that we must do. We must receive what God wants to give us. We must learn to make our home in Christ. He is love, and if we dwell in Him, He will make us great lovers of others. I find this to be great news. I can't possibly drum up enough love to love rightly. Even with a small church, I can't figure out how to love you all. I don't know how to do it. I don't even know what it will look like, right? For me, it sounds like an overwhelming task to try to make everyone around me feel happy. (laughs) But that's not at all what Jesus did, right? When you look at Jesus, he disappointed a lot of people. And he's the embodiment of love. He is perfect love embodied. And so I take great comfort in the simplicity of love. As Soren Kierkegaard famously said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And that one thing is the call for each of us to make our home in Jesus, to dwell in Him. 
And so, today, let us turn our eyes to Him and cast ourselves completely upon Him, that He might fill us with His love in order that we might truly love one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's take just a moment. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have poured your love out before us in Jesus. You've shown us what love looks like and that you have not just made this an idea or philosophy, but that you have made it, your, made it clear that your desire is to come and make your home in us, to dwell within us, to put your love within us, that we might know how to love as you have loved us. Lord, we're like those people at the skate night, just floundering about, making a mess. We don't know how to love well. So we need you to come and make your home with us that we might know how to love. I pray that you would meet us in a powerful way, even this morning here, even as we come to the table, even as we sing songs. Meet us, Lord, with your love. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast. You can check us out online at eucharistsf.org, or you can come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 1504 Bryant Street, San Francisco, California.